MailChimp presents. MailChimp presents. Robin grew up in a family that didn't play by typical rules. Her parents were artists who not only instilled in their daughter a love of visual art, music and theatre, but also the idea that there is a myriad of ways one can approach making art. She could make music in any way she saw fit. Robin has made a career for herself in the pop landscape. Not only is it bursting with creativity and a wide range of influences, but it also redefined what a pop hit could sound like. I sat down to talk with Robin about one of her many incredible songs and how she took the steps to redefine a career that many thought was over, but was actually just getting started. I'm Shirley Manson and this is The Jump. So I'm really psyched you're here. And it's funny, the reading up about your entire career... Mm. What struck me as really highly unusual is that, you know, you started out as this young child star and, you know, most people start their careers making sort of alternative, weirder, riskier records. And then as their careers grow and they get more conservative, I think, in the way that they approach music, you are the complete opposite. Yes. I feel like you've started out one way, you know, working with very disciplined Max Martin type producers or literally Max Martin, should Mm -hmm. I say. Mm -hmm. And then we're here now in 2021 and you're considered one of the most innovative, influential musicians in your genre. That's unusual. Well, it's true. I I agree. I have done that, uh, like reversed kind of um, journey uh, with my music. It's true. It's given me a lot of freedom. Like I've I've always um, been protective uh, of my freedom. And I think how I started making music really um, forced me to do that because I was so miserable (laughs) in this uh, place in the music industry that I ended up, which was like the most commercial place in the music industry for a very, very long time. I think pop music in the 90s was like a really kind of horrible place because it was still, you know, all of the old school, really bad structures from like the old times in the music industry, but then also with a lot of money and a lot of um, commercial interests and just popular culture becoming such a a big machine. So it was a a horrible, horrible place to start out in. (laughs) I can imagine. I mean, you have my absolute sympathies. It's been bad enough for me, and I've always sort of been an alternative artist, you know, and I've had my own dealings with that. But I'm sure, yeah. I came from this, like, you know, kind of romantic childhood with my parents making experimental theatre, just doing things on their own terms. And um, I thought when I was signed that, you know, I was going to go to America and release a record and tour and kind of do what they did, which was just like the absolute um, other thing you could think of than what, what, what I ended up in. So I was very naive. You know, I was mm-hmm. very naive. I brought up, was brought up in this totally different environment and I had all these ideas about what I wanted to do, but it wasn't possible where I was. It was, it was, um, you know, it wasn't like, I'm sure you know this, like certain parts of the music industry, I think, especially around that time, just wasn't really about music at all. It was, it was um, very, very uh, uncreative and um, the record industry was like, 
built on something totally different, I think, than the more commercial part of it than, than mm. what I wanted to do. Mm. That's an interesting um, observation about, you know, alternative culture does definitely have its sense of that you belong to a certain tribe. Mm. And it seems like so many pop artists are sort of out there hanging on their own. You know, it must be very, exactly. very difficult to negotiate exactly. um, the ups and downs of a career by yourself. Yeah, but also, exactly, but because culture around, you know, culture is, is so important. It really is important. And it, it's not just music. It's, it's, it can be, you know, the way you dress as a teenager, the way you show who you are by, by the music you listen to and what you wear or the, the ideas that come with music, you know. The, the, it really is like the, the, uh, the transportation device of new, new ideas. You know, that's what mm-hmm. those artists that you grew up listening to, they plant new new thoughts in your mind. And the culture around that is, I think, um, yeah, really important for human beings. But when you were young, like I read that you were you wrote your first song when you were 13. What did you write this song on? I wrote my first song when I was 11 and I wrote it about my parents' divorce, which was a kind of dramatic storytelling and I wrote it in my head I was like a daydreamer so I wrote the melody in my head and it wasn't until maybe two years later that I actually was with someone that could help me uh, make music to my song Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I had had in my head for a long time and that's how I wrote in the beginning I had songs um, in a library in my head for a long time. I mean, you studied under a pop master, you know, in, yes. in terms of Max Martin, you know, yes. and his team. Totally. Um, and do you think that you, I mean, I'm assuming you learned so much from these mm-hmm. people. I mean, the way they approach making music is sort of like the old 60s version of, mm-hmm. you know, these factories almost in some ways that they yeah, created. For sure. Yeah. Um, I did learn uh, a, like an amazing amount of knowledge came from working with Max Martin and there was a few other people also that I worked with early on that really schooled me in really qualitative uh, classical pop songwriting and it shaped the way that I think about the way I write songs still and I'm still fascinated by it yeah well mm. let's talk about let's talk about the song you picked with every heartbeat mm. um and this was the second single off your fourth record? Yes. Is that right? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, no, because... You're right. Hmm? Am I? Okay, thank totally you. Right. I'm totally r- right. I'm rarely... I'm, <laughs> I'm trying rarely to remember. Right. song is like rammed with hooks and rammed with ideas and mm. great beats and, mm. and vocal hooks and so on and so forth. I mean, I, 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 and yeah. I, was, I was surprised that this was the second single off that record because it's not an obvious choice. I think so too. 
Surely. I think, <laughs> no, but this is so interesting because it wasn't supposed to be the second single. It it was picked by Radio One in in the UK. Uh, we so this is it's so funny how it happened because nobody wanted to sign me. I just started my own label in Sweden and I uh, started working with a management in in um, in London called Deaf Management, and nobody wanted to pick up my record. Um, and I had to. I don't. I mean, I didn't have to, but I asked my friend, who is uh, Max Martin's manager. I asked him, "Can you lend me money because nobody's signing me, and I need to release this record on my own in the UK?" I thought I was going to get a deal, but nobody wants to release it, and so he he lent me ten thousand pounds to release the album, but I just needed like marketing and you know funds to do some shows and stuff, and we were going to release Kanichiwa Bitches" as the first single. And then we were going to release "Be Mine," um, which I still love and think should oh, have incredible. been the second single. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it all went really well. So I was doing all these small shows in London. I was, you know, working my ass off, literally like grinding. Clear up who I made with every heartbeat with was with me. He was playing drums and guitar at the same time, and I was singing. That was how we did the shows. And I did these kind of shows between 2006 and 2007, and, and touring was difficult, and, and there was no real labels there that were interested, and I just kept grinding. I was kind of like in the dumps a little bit, and I was just like improvising. And then all of a sudden, like Pete Tong started playing with every heartbeat in clubs and started to like do really well in clubs in London. And it was really exciting. And then at some point, Annie Mac and Pete Tong were like competing who was going to start playing the record first on Radio One. And so all of a sudden I had this show in, in a place called Dingwalls in 2007. I know it well. Yes. And all My the- people. Your people, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I loved playing those shows, but all of a sudden it was filled with record company, like vultures, again, the people who didn't want to sign me like a, a year earlier were there because they kind of felt like with every heartbeat was like having some kind of like moment. And so we were like, okay, maybe we should just release with every heartbeat then because, you know, it's, it, seems, it seems to be like what people want. So we did that. And that's how I got signed. Um, Again. And that's how you got a number one record. And and the, exactly, and then it went to number one. Yeah, it was my first wow. number one hit record ever in any place outside of Sweden, and 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 with such a you know, I n- I never thought that that song would be a hit. You know, it's so yeah. unusual in the structure and everything. Which is, of course, what is the beauty of it too. You know, mm, exactly. Um, I think you sound a little bit like Kate Bush on it, which of course is to me the ultimate compliment. It is the ultimate compliment. <laughs> I'm always trying to sound like Kate Bush.
how did it, how did, what's the nucleus of, the, of, of this song? Where did it start? So it, it started with the music because Clear Up, my friend, had made this beautiful track, like just this strange club soundscape. And he played it to me, and my album was already done. But he played it to me, and he was going to make an album, and I ended up writing on it. And I wrote a song about him and his girlfriend because they were in such a messy relationship and I was watching it happen and it kind of inspired me. So all of the chords and the, these specific sounds that the record has were already there, but the strings weren't. I wanted there to be a string arrangement and so we brought our friend Carl Bagge in who arranged these beautiful strings uh, kind of after the the melody that I had written and we yeah. were we were really involved in it both of us you know me writing about his relationship and and uh, arranging the song together and putting these strings on them are very avant-garde I think that string section before the so-called chorus comes in is pretty avant-garde I think yeah. and really unexpected in the sort of context of, of a dance track. We were talking a lot about that like how can we make a club record that feels like it sits a little bit outside of what you would expect and we were both listening to a lot of like modern like string music and our friend Carl Bagge, who is a he's an arranger and a composer. He his dad used to be in this amazing Swedish jazz band in the sixties, and we were like, he will get it, you know, because mm. we yeah. didn't want these slimy or like you know t these cheesy exactly, you know what I mean. Yeah. So yeah. so we really went for it, and because also I think because it was it wasn't for my album so there was like this space to kind of like also I was writing about Clearup's relationship so it was really like a free space and it was the last song did you say on the record that you recorded yeah and so yeah you were maybe in a more experimental frame of mind yes and it was also I think the first the first song that I recorded with the four to the floor uh bass drum or mm -hmm. kick drum and um, it really shaped the way I started to think about my next album. It was a really special song in that sense, not only that it was made from a very kind of free space where I wasn't, you know, signed, I had just started my record label, I was really doing what I wanted and then it, it kind of gave me all this new freedom because it gave me a record deal again in in a way that I was comfortable with you know where I still kept control of my music and it, it went to number one but then it also set me off into the next album and, and that that was kind of like when I started writing things like dancing on my own and and these things that were more geared to club music which is what I grew up listening to 
interesting. I mean, it's funny that you said that's that's the first song that you've done a, a four on the floor beat because mm. when I was listening to it, I was sort of struck by how controlled the track is in the sense that I could imagine in sort of less skillful, tasteful hands, it could have turned into a real banger. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But instead, yeah. it sort of remains sort of mournful and tense. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of on the edge of your seat listening to it. You know, it's not mm-hmm. sort of just generic. I feel like in dance music, things are definitely in danger, much like in rock music, of getting really generic and homogenized. Yes. And this track is so different within its own genre. But this Thank track you. really struck me as being really like you're holding on to like running beasts, you know, like mm-hmm. holding them back. That's wonderful. I think. Uh, repetition is such a an amazing thing to work with, and I think the best club music that I, you know, was inspired by as a kid was these songs where there are like chords that can trans. They keep going. They, you know, they they repeat themselves, but they, the more it's repeated, the more it starts to uh, vibrate. And you know, I think I think. That's what great music does. I think that's also why I ended the song in this repetition of this line, this these words, because every time I repeated them, I felt like they they took on a new a new meaning, like it left more space for me, but also the listener to to have a you know a connection with the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me more about your relationship with production, because mm. I know that you have become more and more engaged in it. I've just started to come out as a producer but it took me a really long time and it it does make a difference when I sat down with my own computer music program and started to like make sounds because then I had to be really specific about what it is that I was looking for and it also was really uh, crazy because Things that I didn't think would come out came out. It gave me a more like realistic sense of who I really am as a musician. Um, and it's been a very interesting exploration for the last four years. You try things. You try things forever and ever until something feels better than the other thing. And then you might make a mistake and you hear something new that you didn't hear before. But then there are certain songs that just come out really quickly. And With Every Heartbeat was actually one of those. It came like almost in one go. But that isn't necessarily always a great thing. Like when people tell me, oh, I wrote this song in 15 minutes. I'm like, yeah, and I can hear it. You know, like club music yeah. for me is often just euphoric and tribal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I feel like you do something slightly different to that. I mean, you bring euphoria and you explore all that sort of, mm. you know, joyfulness. But there's mm. also 
There's a, um, a used mournful earlier. Right. It's when they're paired that, like, I feel that there's some sense of reality, that there's some sense of, like, um, something that I understand. Yeah, when they come together, they are, it becomes more real, like dancing with a little, you know, tear in your eye is... Um, uh, exquisite. It's exquisite, yes. I think you're, I, I mean, it's, it's outrageous to me. Your career's outrageous and I hope that you continue to be be aware of just what a genius you are because I don't think Sharon. women are told that very often oh, <laughs> wow it's so nice and I'm, I'm really you know I'm so happy to do this podcast thank you Robin I send my love to you same to you thank you so much all right Robin The Jump is hosted by me, Shirley Manson, and is produced by Dan Gallucci. The Jump is an original series from MailChimp, produced in partnership with Little Everywhere. Dan Gallucci and Jane Marie are the executive producers. The Jump is mixed by Mike Richter, original music composed by Rishikesh Hirway. And a very special thanks goes out to our wonderful booker, Mara Davis. Mm-hmm.